grab a Bible and turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We, we've been talking about uh, first singleness, and then we talked about marriage. And so we've pretty much by now used everybody in this room as a guinea pig for us to try to understand God's grace a little bit more deeply. And you know, our purpose in this is for you to begin to understand that when Jesus came and died on the cross so that he could take away all our sins, that we would be people that are no longer covered in guilt and shame, that that was only half the story, that the other half of the story is that he rose again so that we too may raise with him to newness of life, that we would have an abundant life. And what we've been unpacking is, what does it mean for those of us in this room that have given their lives to Christ, because in fact Christ has given his life for us, what does it mean to live an abundant life? I love uh, what the author Chip Dodd says about the abundant life. He describes it like this. He says that it's, it's a life where vulnerability took the place of control. It's the life where faith and trust replaces dread. It's the life where surrender replaces self-will. It's the life where grace replaces law. It's the life where compassion replaces apathy. And a life where hope replaces resignation. So, with that said, let's dive into 1 Corinthians 7 and see what we can gain today about this new life in Christ. And let me give you a little history We did this several months ago, but let me remind you, this church in Corinth um, was in a city that was really a crazy city. This was a city that was known for its idol worship, uh, for its hedonism. It was known for its sports arenas. It was known for being a city that uh, had a huge focus on entertainment. It was known for a city that... uh, had all kinds of various uh, fetishes when it came to sexual expression. Sounds a lot like Nashville, doesn't it? (laughs) I just saw the sign uh, over here on the parking lot. Uh, What was it? Uh, Something Cabaret Royale? You don't want to know. All right. It's a new place in town. Hallelujah. Well, this, Paul came into this crazy city that had never heard Christ, and he began to preach Christ. And people were converted. And what's crazy about these conversions is that people were converted that were in all stages of life. There were people who were married that got converted when their partner didn't get converted. There were people who were slaves that got converted when their slave owner wasn't converted. There were people who were slave owners that were converted. There were people who were uncircumcised and unfamiliar with Judaism who were converted. And there were people that were circumcised and familiar with Judaism that were converted. There were people in all kinds of crazy situations. And they wrote to Paul, this church wrote to Paul, and they wanted some direction. They said, we have this hodgepodge of people that are gathering together from every walk of life. And we have a ton of questions to ask you about this life in grace, this life of living out Uh, the gospel of Christ in our lives. That's why in chapter 7, verse 1, if you look there, it says, Paul says, now for the matters you wrote about. Because Paul is showing us that they wrote to him and said, hey, we got some questions. And one of the questions that they wrote to Paul and asked him about was, "If, if I'm converted and I'm married to somebody who was not converted, what should I do? 
especially if the person that I'm married to like worships idols or maybe their expression of worship is something that's a violation of marriage. What should I do? So Paul is addressing that question. Put it up here on the screen. He says, to the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. Underline that in your Bible because we're going to come back to that. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. A husband must not divorce his wife. So what Paul is doing in this first answering of the question is he said, let me teach you what Jesus taught about marriage. And so let's go and find out what Jesus taught about marriage. Turn to Mark chapter 10. If you don't know where that is, somebody get there in the house Bible and shout out a page number for me. Wow, that was so quick, dude. Did you grow up Baptist? You did, didn't you? Sword drills. I love that. Royal ambassadors. Okay. Mark chapter 10. You non-Baptists don't know what that means. I can express it to you later. Verse 2. Some Pharisees came to Jesus and they were testing him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Well, Jesus responded by saying, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Jesus said this, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female, and for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. Now, let's go back to the beginning of that uh, sentence because I want you to see that. For this reason, okay? So a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So we see what Jesus is telling us is God's intention in marriage. That it's God that unites two people and makes them one. Actually, the word there, unite, actually is uh, a word that's also used to glue. That God is gluing two people together. He's knitting them together. And his design is that they would be so knit together, so glued together, so, so brought together, that they actually, when you see them, it's one. It's a beautiful picture of intimacy. It's this idea that when God, now write this down, marriage is God's idea. It's God's institution all the way back to the beginning of Genesis chapter 2, where God says the two will become one, okay? That this is God's idea, not our idea. We'll talk about that a little bit more later. But his idea is for, for us in marriage to experience intimacy. And what is intimacy? This is good. Imagine being fully known. I know, that's frightening, isn't it? To where someone just sees you and they know you and they know everything that they see and yet they fully love. But it doesn't stop there. Because the other side of intimacy is just as true to where we fully know and fully see and yet fully love. Two people coming together and saying, I see you and I love you. And I want more. In fact, it's a beautiful picture of two people 
being emotionally, spiritually, and wherever your mind wants to go this morning, naked before one another, standing bare, unashamed, wanting to embrace. (laughs) It's a beautiful picture. It's hard, though, because as we often talk about marriage, marriage is really the reality of two very sunburned people coming into a relationship and wanting to hug one another. Have you ever been to the beach and the first day of the beach you just get cooked and you're just like lobster red and you're just, you know, you swore you put on sunscreen only to find out later that, you know, that was like baby oil and it just cooked you, you know? And here you are at night and the air conditioner's gone out in the little cabin that you're in, uh, unlike in this room right now. And you're sitting there and you're cooking and somebody comes in and says, oh, let me put lotion all over that. And the closer they get with their hand, (laughs) because you know, even though they're coming with comfort, it's going to be painful. And that's true about marriage. Because when Christ, when God brought two people together, the journey of intimacy is intended to bring healing in one another's lives. It's intended to bring nurture into one another's lives. It's intended to bring love. That's why it says in Malachi that God hates divorce. Because try gluing a piece of paper together and then separating it. You can't do it cleanly. It is painful and destructive. And what God intended is not divorce. God intended that two people to stay together, and even though they're sunburned, to experience intimacy and healing and the journey of learning and loving one another. But... Jesus says here, it was because of your hearts, because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. And what was the law? That Moses allowed people to get divorced. And I want you to hear this. There are situations that God allows divorce. But it's never encouraged in Scripture. And I want to destroy a misconception. When Jesus says it was because your hearts were hard, He is not singling out people that are divorced. He's not singling out people that have been, have experienced divorce. In fact, he's not singling out any of you in this room that have thought about divorce. When Jesus is saying that, he's saying it's not divorced people that have hard hearts. It's all of us that have hard hearts. We all have hard hearts. Let me let you in on a little secret. You have the ability to mess up every relationship you're in. (laughs) You may be too idealistic to believe that. But let me uh, comfort you in my years of marriage that uh, I have the ability to mess up every relationship I am. I'm in. In fact, I don't just have the ability... uh, I exercise that ability on a daily basis. I tend not just to be able to mess up relationships. I do mess up every relationship I'm in. If somebody's in a perfect relationship, please stay away from them and leave them alone because as soon as you get near them, you're going to mess it up. We all have hard hearts. When I do weddings, I'll be doing a wedding this afternoon. One of the things that I will say during this wedding is that uh, there are two problems that you're bringing into your marriage. Matter of fact, there are huge mountains that you're going to have to go over together 
to have a good marriage. One is called the bride, the other is called the groom. See, let me just give you a little test, okay? How many of you are married here this morning? Okay, all right. Did y'all see that? Say, put, put your hands up again and y'all look around if you're not married, all right? Look around. Okay, here's a question I want you to go and ask them after the service, all right? First, I want you to go to the wife and ask her this question. How selfish can a man be? And then watch your, what? <laughs> the, the wives are already smiling. Oh, I can answer that question. Okay, well, hey, fair game. Go to the husband next and say to him, hey, how selfish can a woman be? And he'll look at you and go, uh, I don't know because my wife is so giving and supportive because <laughs> he's already so afraid of her as all men are afraid of women that he won't be honest with you that he's now living in fear and he's brought fear into that relationship and now that's what's wrecking it. He thought I'm bringing peace by not arguing about anything, but in fact, he's living. Okay, you get it. It's funny, but it's true. See, our hearts are so hard that we often can't even see how hard our hearts are. See, I never thought that I was as bad as I was until I got married. I mean, there were words that came out of my mouth that I never thought would ever come out of my mouth when I was a single guy. I would look at people married and I'd go, man, come on. You know, when you find that woman that's going to complete you, it's just going to be awesome and nothing but just goodness all the time. And I will treat her like a queen after a year of marriage. I'm like, what just came out of my mouth? What is that thought going through my head? I don't understand that. It's amazing how intimacy can expose not just the good things, but also the bad things. It was easy to be loving and forgiving when no one wanted to share my remote. So Paul says, because your hearts are hard, because of this reality, he, he goes on to verse 12 and he says, I have something that I want to say to you. Now that I've shared with you what the Lord says about marriage, let me share with you what I have to say about it. Because Jesus didn't speak specifically to your situation, so we don't have his words specifically to what you asked, but let me as an apostle speak into it. So let's go to verse 12. To the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord. He says, now these are the words from me. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. If you're married to someone and that situation is, is that they're not a believer and they may have some outrageous lifestyle that you both had before you were converted and they're still in it and they're willing to stay with you even though now you've converted to Christianity, stay with them. Let's keep going. For the unbeliever husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. You ought to go and study what that means. And then you ought to watch us baptize babies and say, does that point to that? Uh, that's not what we're preaching on today, though. Keep going. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or a woman is not bound in such circumstances. See, God sometimes allows divorce. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? 
Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So Paul steps in and he says simply, stay. Stay in that situation. But he says it throughout this entire chapter. In fact, he says, if you're a, if you're a slave, stay. Now, if you can purchase your freedom, that's great. But don't be a runaway. If you're a slave, stay. If you're married, stay. If you're circumcised, stay. If you're uncircumcised, stay. In verse 17, I don't have it open. Does somebody have it? Who's got that? Who can stand up and read verse 17 for us? Stand up. Linuel, please read loud. Okay, so what Paul is saying is where you are, stay there. In fact, where you are, God has called you there. Receive the place you're in as from the Lord. This is what he has for you. Why? I mean, let's think about this just for a minute. As I meditated on this week, why would the Lord want someone to stay in a hard marriage? Why would the Lord want me to be in a place that is painful for me. What reason could God possibly have for me staying in a place that is brutally painful and a struggle? Well, I want to give you three quick reasons, and I need your help on this one, because um, we're, we're going to do a time of response. And we're, we're using this topic as a guinea pig again because some of you are not married some of you are not considering divorce. This may not be directly applicable to your life situation, but all of us know what pain is. All of us knows what's it like to be in a situation I want to get out of. So I need you to apply these things to your life. You do the work of smearing this stuff on the places in your life that needs it, okay? You ready? The first reason I believe the Lord tells us to stay and the Apostle Paul echoes that is he wants me to see myself. He wants me to see my authentic self. Now let me explain. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 3 through 5, there's a familiar passage there where Jesus says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? I love that. Like, Jesus wasn't a great comedian. Because this is a picture of this big board coming out of your own eye. And you're hitting that guy in the head like the three stooges while you're trying to get the speck out of his eye. And Jesus says, you're a hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. What he's saying is when you're in a hard relationship, when you're in a situation in a relationship that is creating so much pain, and you're saying to God, why can't I get out of this? You should ask yourself, what have I done to add to this broken place? What have I done? See, true love, we know that Scripture says, that no greater love than this when a man lays down his life for a friend. So we know that the nature of true love is that we lay down our lives for those that we truly love. False love, on the other hand, seeks to protect myself from you laying my life down for me. <laughs> it's kind of like the story in the Garden of Eden. You know, when Adam and Eve, you know, when they were created in God's image and they hadn't sinned yet, it was beautiful, you know, just frolicking through the garden. And, and then sin happened and God's walking through the garden and he comes up to Adam and he goes, Adam, what happened? And what does he do? <laughs> 
He falls on his knees and he says, Lord, I take full responsibility for this. Let the burden fall on me and me alone as the head of my family. I am the sinner here. <laughs> he says, that woman, love changed from I will protect you to you protect me. He threw her under the bus, didn't he? Because what sin does, what hardness of heart does, is it mutates the beauty of what God created us for into something ugly. And it twisted. We go from being those that sacrifice ourselves to living in a world of self-protection. And so he threw, he threw Eve out in front of him and he said, See, the woman, she calls me to sin. And then he did something that's just, it's brilliant when you think about it. Adam, man, just like he was on his toes. It wasn't just the woman. He pointed to God and he said, The woman you gave me. He threw God under the bus. It's your fault and her fault. It's not my fault. You guys work it out. I'm going back to the garden. See, what's crazy is, is that in relationships, our favorite word is you, isn't it? At the beginning of relationship, you, 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 you are so beautiful. You make my heart sing. You. You are all I've ever wanted, you know? After a couple of days of marriage, it's you. You. You watch a couple that gets into an argument that's been married for a while. They get on the, uh, the little horses, the merry-go-round, the you horses, you know? That you did this. You said this. You did this. You said this. And it's this argument of constantly trying to place the blame on each other. You, 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 you. Isn't it funny how, how love twists and breaks now to a place of self-protection? And two people that vowed that you complete me now are fighting to win an argument rather than listen and understand. Jesus wants us to stay because he wants us to see our authentic self. Do you see what you've done to hurt this relationship? That's not your authentic self. But I have to see how I'm walking out of who God made me to be so that I can repent and put that down and turn and pick up who he created me to be. He didn't create me to be somebody that turns people in my lives to things I use for self-protection. He, he made me to be the kind of person that sacrifices my life for the people that I love in my life. To lift them up and encourage them and build them to be what God intended them to be. To put salve on their sunburn and to care for them and nurture them. But when I sin, I turn my back on that and I come over here and make everything about me. And when I repent of that, when I see that, when I open my eyes and go, wow, my heart is so hardened, I can repent of that. And in repentance, I can put that down. But when I put that down, what do I pick up? The grace of who I really am. Because when Christ came, the old is gone and the new has come. We are new creations in Christ. That's why it says in Galatians 5 that we have the ability now to keep in step with the Spirit. And what are we keeping in step with? Love, joy, Peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's who I am. That's who Christ created me to be. 
That's if you got down to the core of my being, you wouldn't find a broken, sinful man. Christ did away with that guy. What you're going to find inside of me is Christ in me, the hope of glory. That's what I'm fighting to let come out. That's the authentic me. So the first reason he wants us to stay is, do you see who you are? Do you see what's keeping you from living and the reality of who Christ created you to be? Are you willing to repent? As Martin Luther called it, the joyful, mournful repentance. That we're mournful because, yes, I see the hardness of my heart. But we're joyful because, yes, I see the hardness of my heart. So I can put it down and now pick up the grace and the mercy of God. The second reason is that he wants us to understand the role of pain in our lives. Now, that may seem strange to you, the role of pain in my life. Because most of us have learned from the time we were little bitty kids is that pain is the thing that you get away from. It's the thing you avoid. It's the thing that your life is going to be successful and happy if you got less and less and less pain. You know, we learned that, or I learned that when I stuck my fork in that electrical socket as a three-year-old. I learned, don't ever do that again. That was painful. Don't go to pain. And so we start beginning to create this philosophy of pain that when I'm in pain, something's unfair, something's abnormal, or something is wrong. When we begin to take this idea about pain, that when I'm in suffering and then I'm in pain, something is wrong. It's easy for us to shame our pain. It's easy for us to feel rotten about the fact that we're in a hard situation, especially in a relationship. And instead of walking through the pain, we begin to walk around the pain and avoid it. And let me explain. We become survivors rather than thrivers. Chip Dodd, who I quoted at the beginning of the sermon, he talks about this. He says, when we walk around pain, when we see pain as something bad and something to avoid, and I walk around it and I'm not willing to admit the pain of my own heart in a relationship, then I become a survivor. And I start using language like this. And this is language to avoid my heart. Language to avoid pain. I start saying things like, thinking about a relationship, marriage. Yeah, that's life. That's just life, man. That's life. I'm a realist, man. All marriages are hard. But when I do that, I'm trying to pretend that something that deeply matters doesn't matter. And for me to pretend that something that deeply matters doesn't matter, I have to walk away from my heart. I'm walking around pain rather than walking into it. Another thing that I do is I start using phrases like, at least I don't. Like, at least I don't yell at you like your father did. It's a simple attempt to try to avoid responsibility by justifying myself by comparing myself to other people. I'm not walking through my pain. I'm walking around my pain by saying, at least I don't. I may be bad, but I'm not that bad. And trust me, everybody in this room has the ability to find somebody that's worse at something than you are. And you know what? When we find that person, we remember their name. We do. How about this one? That's too much for me to handle. 
This idea that I'm proclaiming that I've taken inventory of myself and I don't have what it takes to walk through that pain. I'm sorry, I just can't do that. It's this declaration that I am all alone in this because I've taken inventory of me and I don't have what it takes to walk through that. It's a complete denial that there's any community around me or that God could possibly be for me. It is me and me alone. Doesn't that sound like Adam? It's her fault and it's your fault. That leaves me all alone. I don't have the ability to deal with this. Or I love this one. You don't know what I've been through. It's a beautiful language of a survivor. Because when I say to you, I'm not going to let you close to me because you don't know what I've been through. I'm declaring that I have to protect myself from everybody now. I am going to avoid anybody's words or anybody's helps because relationships are too risky now. Nobody understands me. Nobody understands what I've been through. Nobody understands my pain. I am stepping back from everybody and off this platform. Right? It's the language of survivor. I've got to hunker down and get into survival mode. But hey, people, we are not survivors. If you know Christ, we are the children of God. And as children of God, listen to what the children of God say. In Romans 5, it says, we have been set free from the kingdom of darkness. We've been brought into his kingdom of light. We've been made new. We've been those that he's taken our sins and thrown them as far as the east is from the west. And he has made us his people. And he says, not only we rejoice in all that, but we also rejoice in our pain, our suffering. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance hope, and our perseverance character and character hope, and hope does not put us to shame. When I step into my pain rather than around it, something happens with me. Hope explodes. And I begin to understand that no situation is hopeless anymore. There is always hope. Hope and pain awakens us to the reality that God is working. When I bring hope into a situation where I am hurting, it reminds me that my hope is not in the small things like this situation. My hope is in the big things that God is bigger than this situation. I love what Cornel West said about hope. If you've never read him, you ought to read him because, boy, he will kick your can. I mean, he will knock it over and stuff will spill out and you'll go, I have to deal with that, all right? He says this about hope. To be a Christian is to live dangerously, honestly, freely. To step in the name of love as if you may land on nothing. Yet to keep on stepping because the something that sustains you, no empire can give you and no empire can take away. What is it we have? Hope. And what is hope doing? It's turning our ears to a bigger story. And it uses pain and suffering as a megaphone so we can hear it. When I walk through pain, it's, it's bringing me to a bigger story. And this is the best part. And the final point. In Romans 5, it says, Hope is showing us that God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Why does he want us to stay? Because he wants us to see our authentic self. Why does he want us to stay? So that something would be exploded, which is hope in the middle of our pain. That we would walk through pain rather than to avoid it. Why does he want us to stay? 
Thirdly, he wants us to see him. He wants us to see him. Let me explain. Midtown was about three years old, and we were meeting over in the old Rocket Town building. And uh, it was a communion Sunday, and if you've been around, you know, we do the kneelers up front so that you can participate in this process. And, um, and so that's always, ask anybody who serves communion, it wrecks you the rest of the day. It just drains you because you just kind of feel like you're just in a holy place, and it's just overwhelming, and it's hard to do without crying. I mean, it's just powerful. And so that particular Sunday, this woman was in my line and came up and, uh, and kneeled. And it was obvious that she, um, she had had a rough life. Let me put it that way. And it wasn't that she had a rough life. She was in a rough life. I mean, her hair was going every which way. She had sores all over her. Her fingernails were all dark and black, and a lot of her teeth were missing. And she looked like she had slept on 2nd Avenue, which turns out she did. And she reaches up for communion, and I give her communion, and she looks at me, and you can tell that this is not a familiar place for her, but somewhere out of the recesses of her past, she looked at me, and she goes, Thank you, Father. I became a priest that day. And she crossed herself. And she got up and in her dirty clothes and in her smells, she began to make her way back to her seat. She was nobody that if she walked in this room, nobody would look at her and say, I want to get closer to her. If she walked into this room, most of us would step back and say, I don't want to get close at all. So I thought, wow, that's interesting. I wonder what brought her in here. And I go on to serve the next person. When the service was over, this man, who became a friend later, came up to me. And he began to cry. And he said, he said Randy, will you pray with me? I said, well, yeah, man, what, what do you want to pray about? And he goes, not about me. Pray for her. And he pointed to the woman who's making her way out the door. And I said, yeah, what do you want me to pray? And he goes, man, I, lo I love her so much. She's the love of my life. Man, I, I am passionately in love with her. And I want to give her everything in this world. But she's a prostitute and she's a drug addict. And I'm praying that she'll get off the streets and she'll stop prostituting herself. And she will let me love her. Will you pray for that? He was nuts about her. It wrecked me. Because that's what Jesus is doing for me. That's what he's doing for us. In Ephesians 5, it says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her. Present her radiant, without stain or wrinkle, blemish, but holy and blameless. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And he says this, this is a profound mystery. But I'm not talking about you. He says, I'm talking about Christ and the church. He's talking about us. He's saying that we are the prostitute. We are the drug 
cleaned up folks. We are the people that smell and that nobody wants to be around. We're the ones that are unattractive and unlovable. And yet Christ said, I came because I am in love with you. And he gave everything. He gave himself to make her beautiful, to make her clean, to make her radiant. And this is what he says when he makes us holy and blameless. Wow, let this fall deep into your heart. I will never divorce you. I will always love you. I will always stay. That's why Paul said it may be painful, but if it's up to you, stay. Now let me say this. I know that we mentioned divorce this morning. Some of you have been through divorce. Some of you may be going through divorce. Some of you may uh, be thinking about going through divorce. I am so sorry for the pain you're going through, the pain you've been through. There are so many questions about this topic we're not going to answer today. Let me just say this. Divorce is not the scarlet letter. It's not the unforgivable sin. If you've been through that, it doesn't make you less. It's a new day. Today is. And whether you've been through that or you've never been through that, all of us, we are the church. Today is a new day. And I want to ask you these three questions. Do you see yourself? Do you see your authentic self? The one that has the ability to love because you are loved? Will you step into the pain instead of stepping around your pain? And will you find hope? And finally, do you see the groom that is calling you to himself today? And will you put down your pride and step into his embrace? Okay, like I said, you got to apply that. So let me pray you can do it. And then we're going to worship and kind of walk through it. Lord, how beautiful you are. That you would change us and say, behold, my radiant bride. How magnificent you are. That you would come and give yourself and lay down your life for the one that you love, which is us. How magnificent that you would make us blameless without wrinkle or blemish and call us your beloved. Can we see ourselves that way? Can we know that even in our pain we can rejoice? Even in our suffering, it becomes a megaphone to see and hear the story of the great lover of our soul that is working all things together for the good. And can we see you? Lord, we are a messy, inconsistent, crazy bunch of people. Come and pour your love out on us. Speak to us, your bride. Let us put down our pride and allow you to embrace us as the prodigal son allowed his father to embrace him. In Christ's name we pray.